link data has this concept of, of sort of a basic atom of our data molecule so that if you break it down into these small independent parts, they can be recombined in a, in a lot of different ways. Metadata, in its most basic terms, refers to any of the small bits of descriptive information that help you organize and discover resources within large collections. Once, metadata was limited by what could be stored, managed, and scanned easily by human beings. So in libraries, you'd find a card catalog which contained information about authors, titles, subjects, and short summaries of volumes. Those cards would lead you to a shelf of books lined up by some sort of simplified cataloging system, like the Dewey Decimal System, which sorted books by general topic areas. Now that libraries are going digital, there are any number of ways people can stumble onto new books and resources. Fields of metadata can now be tweaked to include recommendations from other library patrons, or patterns from within the entire text of a book, making it easier for users to find resources that are useful to them. But opening up metadata to its possibilities is becoming a challenge for today's librarians. Karen Coyle is a librarian and a consultant in the area of digital libraries who spent over 20 years in the California Digital Library at the University of California. She spoke with David Weinberger about metadata and what it means for libraries on today's Library Lab, the podcast. You wrote not too long ago, and I'm going to quote you, um, the idea that library metadata will be used widely on the open web changes the meaning of cataloging. How does it change the meaning of cataloging? Well, it changes the meaning of cataloging because cataloging has been designed really as a closed system. Um, every record in a catalog essentially puts itself in the context of every other record in that catalog. Um, and in, in a sense, it's its own little private web. And at the same time, over the uh, 150 years of modern cataloging, um, we, we in libraries have developed some, um, some interesting practices that aren't really very common in the rest of the world in the way that we describe our data. So there are really two important ways, at least, that library cataloging has to change. One, it has to see itself as being part of a larger context and two, it has to see its audience as being really anybody on the web. And therefore, it has to speak to that audience rather than speaking only to the library audience. What's the difference between the web audience and the library audience? In theory, libraries or public libraries are open to everyone, so it should be the same public, shouldn't it? In theory, it should be the same public. But um, if you've been around an academic library recently, and especially uh, – if you've been an undergrad recently, which I know that neither one of us has, um, you know that libraries do training. They expect people to come in and learn how to use the library. No one gets training to learn how to use the web or resource, resources on the web. Um, if you need training to use it, it's not going to work on the web, on the open web. And that's a difference. You, you've also said that uh, you made an argument for storing, uh, again, I'll quote you, uh, storing, quote, data apart from any particular record format. Why does that matter, and how might that help address the wider public of the web? This is going to be a little hard to answer without getting into some of the details of, of, 
of what the library record format is. But let's uh, simply say that the library record format is something that was developed um, in the 60s to replicate the library card. And the record format really is a, a markup. It's, it's not so much a data format, it's a markup format. It marks up text. There are a lot of things assumed in that. There are a lot, there's a lot of structure that has uh, certain kinds of meaning. And it's very, very hard to present this data in any other format because it's been designed only to be used within that format. If we want library information to be usable by others in other situations, that information has to make sense outside of this one particular record format. So it has to be possible for people to pull in um, bits of information in order to create a citation or to pull in information into a research study. And right now the way things are structured and the way that the data is coded, that's simply not possible. So I'm wondering whether it's possible at all within any architecture that relies upon records. So you've been pretty deeply involved in, um, in linked data or linked open data. And one of the ways uh, I've had that explained to me is that rather than thinking in terms of records, which will always be – will always limit the uh, possibilities for their use because a record cannot anticipate every conceivable type of metadata that might come along that might be useful. So that rather than thinking about uh, metadata in terms of records, uh, linked data enables us to think of that data apart from all record formats – not just from the MARC record format. One of the advantages of linked data is that it has this, this concept of, of sort of a basic atom um, of, of our data molecule, that, that you can break things down into these small parts, and these small parts are therefore quite interchangeable. I often describe it as being like tinker toys, but I'm afraid that there's people today who've probably never seen a tinker toy, but that's what I think of them as being. So that if you break it down into these uh, small independent parts, they can be recombined in a, in a lot of different ways. I think that there will still be, to some extent, that people will still be thinking in terms, to some extent, in records in some situations. But I think of those today as being views that out of all of the uh, data points that you might have about a resource like a book, one person can see that looking somewhat like, say, a li the library record today. Someone else is going to see it looking like uh, a bibliography. Someone else is going to see it looking at points on a map. Each of these is going to be a view, and for each view, certain bits of information will have been selected out of the, the sort of data soup that we have. And that's what today we would call a record, um, except that the record that we create today locks the data into that and doesn't allow it to go back out and interact with other data. So, I mean, this does reverse or invert the normal relationship where the record has been the source of information and uh, from it is pulled the particular data that are required and so forth, uh, as opposed to what you're suggesting, which is that the record becomes, as you say, simply one view uh, into a cloud of, of data atoms. 
And this has some tremendous advantages beyond just the fact of being able to create these different views. For example, it allows you to add new data in a non-disruptive way. The fact that someone adds a new bit of data does not disrupt what is already there. And we know that adding new data to, say, a relational database basically means, you know, practically recreating, you know, whole tables and that type of thing. It's, it, it is very disruptive. It is, it is uh, something that you avoid doing. In this new environment where the, the data exists sort of atomistically and the views are um, essentially on the fly, any new data can be added at any time, and it, and it's added, it can be added uh, in relationship to only one other, one other thing that's out there. It doesn't change the whole. It doesn't change the shape of the cloud. But record formats do have one great advantage. They're, the fields are well-known, well-described, and so they are, um, if you are within the standard format, if you're using Mark 21, um, then it's really easy to get interoperability, um, to get information. You know what this piece of data represents. It's the, you know, whatever field it's in. It's the author's name, or it's the translator's name, or it's the publisher's name, or it's the publisher's year, and so forth. It, the fixity of the records makes interoperability really easy. How do you achieve interoperability in a linked data world? You achieve interoperability by, um, essentially, by publishing your information, the meaning and the structure of your information in a standard way on the web so that everyone has access to that. Right now, what we, we don't have any um, sort of, I wouldn't call them best practices, we almost don't have any practices, that there's been so little use at this point of linked data that uh, in the library world that we haven't really built up a set of habits and once we build up those habits, then those, those, those habits are going to take us a long way toward interoperability. But essentially, in the linked data world, what you do is you make all of the essential information for your data to be machine actionable in a machine actionable way. So there, uh, this is why we have things like the OWL, the web ontology language, we have SCOS, the simple knowledge organization system, that make it possible for you to define the things in your metadata. Um, now, machines are going to be able to understand that. In order for humans to understand it, you have to provide with that your definitions, uh, your scope notes, and you know, your, um, I guess we were calling your guidance rules. And those, too, need to be connected to this information so that machines can direct that to humans. So there's a human side, which is humans have to understand what data they're filling in, what data they're receiving. Machines have to understand the structure and all of the possible interconnections and where to get the information to help humans understand it. Do you expect the metadata standards world to... Um, calm down to sort of re-standardize on some uh, on some ontologies or vocabularies and the like, or do you expect there to be perpetual uh, you know, ferment um, in, in at that level of of the architecture, so to speak? My guess, and this is just a guess, is that there will be communities that need a kind of stability, such as the library community, but I also think that many of the scientific communities will need this as well. And they will arrive at a kind of 
um, interesting, not exactly a stasis, because they'll still be able to expand their view, but they'll arrive at something that's fairly stable, because they need that in order to function. But I think right now we're in that um, that initial kind of trying to get it together mode, and we've got to go through all of this experimentation in order to arrive at the kind of stable environment that we're going to need to, to be able to function. So I, I want to ask you about the stable environment, because in the sciences, it seems, at least to me, that um, in some of the sciences, we're heading towards a stasis in which there is perpetual but interoperable disagreement. So that, for example, in the biological sciences, there is continuing disagreement about how to classify things, uh, which is actually, in some ways, in some instances, it's a disagreement about actual science, and sometimes it's about not naming things. But there are the growth of namespaces, which are internally consistent but can be generally mapped to one another so that even if we disagree about how to classify something, uh, we can agree that we're, we are at least talking about the same thing. And if that's – so that's one model. And I th think it's – so what I want to ask you if that's a model for dealing with some of the really naughty problems librarians face around, for example – um, what constitutes the same um, the same book? Are we going to end up with um, perpetual but manageable, that is, interoperable disagreements about what constitutes this, the same book, or are we? Do you think we're going to head towards a single um, idea? What we have today in the quote unquote uh, library, archives, museum world is really a number of different views. Um, although there is an effort to to bring together the, that entire sort of cultural community to be able to be interoperable, they are going to have different points of view. The archival view of things is quite different to the library view of things. The rare books view of things is very different to the, you know, standard, you know, cataloging the bestseller view of things. The um, And what we've had in the past is these, these different views have been expressed in such a way that the data is barely and sometimes not even interoperable. So we've had a very hard time sharing uh, within this broader cultural community. So what I see uh, is that we will, we will still have these different views, that the archivists are still going to uh, look at their material in a way that's different to how librarians look at it. Um, and I'm not quite sure how museum people look at, at their material, but I'm sure it, too, is quite different. But what we will have underlying all of that is that we will share some vocabulary. And it's that shared vocabulary that is going to make it easier for us to interoperate between these different views. So I'm, I'm sure the different views will be there. And as a matter of fact, because of the way that library systems have existed, Many sort of sub-communities in the library world have been constrained to use the dominant view, which is Mark 21, and the uh, standard cataloging rules. It is possible that we will have even more different views in the future because that constraint will no longer be there. And some communities, let us say the music community, 
are going to be able to really achieve what they want to achieve in terms of describing their data and helping their users find it without the constraints of trying to act almost like their materials are the same as books. Earlier you mentioned the development of, of habits. That we, we have not, we're not even at the point where we have developed uh, practices or much less best practices. What sorts of, of habits or best practices do you anticipate? Well, this is <laughs> this is where we get into that, that libraries are going to have to change what they do uh, quite dramatically. If we're going to really um, make a change, we're going to actually change how we view the things that we are talking about when we create our metadata. So, for example, we're going to change how we view people in relation to the things that we describe. We're going to um, we're going to have to quit trying to create structured strings that make it possible to put things in alphabetical order. That, I think, is going to lead us to a, a new set of, uh, of thinking, which in a sense, the, the new cataloging code, resource description access, leads us, takes us the first step along that way. And then these will become the, the notions around which we create our metadata, and it's going to be a radically different way of producing our data, but I think it's going to be more flexible and it's going to be more usable both within the library world and outside it. So other than having to fundamentally change the way that we think about data and come up with new <laughs> practices, <laughs> what's, what stands in the way of the linked open data vision when it comes to libraries? A number of things stand in the way at the moment. One is that we have very few uh, people who have the time to gain the skills and to make use of the skills in order to experiment in this area. There are, most libraries have very little technical staff. And in, in, only in the really large libraries, large institutions, is there any staff that has time to do actual development? What libraries mainly do is they rely on vendors to produce systems for them. And so moving forward in this way is very difficult because it's not quite clear where it's going to begin to happen. British Library has done some work. Library of Congress has done some work. But smaller libraries aren't able to participate. So how do we get this more widespread? There are times when libraries or institutions don't don't really feel all right about freeing their data, about making it available for others to use. Uh, there are major institutions that say, we created this, why should we you know, let it out there for anyone to use? So this is an issue that we have to resolve. Open Knowledge Foundation has an uh, open bibliographic group that is trying to encourage libraries to, to open their data for free access uh, even for commercial access, because any constraints on use of data really make it very hard to do, uh, you know, widespread mashups, because you can't keep track of where each data point came from. I see libraries saying, well, wait a minute, the more we put it out there, the more we can reuse it. Not only, you know, are we putting, are we, you know, taking our, you know, hard data that we have spent all this money creating and now we're giving it out there for free, but I think if libraries see that that they too accrue great benefits from this, that they'll be more willing to put it out there. So hopefully this, this is something that I, I think that there's a m momentum that is going to resolve this for us.
it is at the moment a barrier. Karen, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Karen Coyle is a librarian and a consultant in the area of digital libraries who spent over 20 years in the California Digital Library at the University of California. Library Lab, the podcast, was brought to you by the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. Theme music comes Creative Commons licensed from Brad Sucks, who you can find at bradsucks.net. We're interviewing a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the written word. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work, including info on today's guest, join a discussion, and share this podcast with others. You can also find today's podcast, as well as all of our previous episodes, now available in MP3 and AUG formats, subscribable in iTunes. The show was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and David Weinberger, with the support of the Harvard Law School. (music) 